Thank you for joining us for the lessons from First Naz podcast. I've said before, if I lived here, I'd go to church here. Uh, yeah. Uh, and my wife reminds me that I don't live here. <laughs> but she'd go with me if she lived here, too. <laughs> well, uh, you may remember, you may not, that we're spending these few weeks that we have left together in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, the title of last week's message was The Greatest Sermon Ever Preached. Somebody may have thought that that was a little bit arrogant of me to title a message, The Greatest Sermon Ever Preached. But really, I think that's what we look at when we look at the Sermon on the Mount, this collection of teaching. Matthew couches this whole sermon in one setting. Luke takes the, the truths of the Sermon on the Mount and scatters them all through uh, his gospel in various settings. I, I, I appreciate what Luke has done because it, it looks like what Luke is doing with the Sermon on the Mount is, is thinking through the words of Jesus that would have been related to him since he wasn't there at the time. And as he comes across circumstances that he deals with in the life of the church, and he tells the story of the lives of the disciples and of Jesus' ministry, he, he, he finds a moment when this particular part of the Sermon on the Mount just fits that situation in life. And so he'll, he'll plug it into to that to that setting. So just a, a quick reminder of what it is we're up to for the next few weeks. I'm really doing a couple of things. Um, one is sharing what I've learned through study and preparation and prayer about the Sermon on the Mount, what it is that Jesus is, is saying. And then as I mentioned last week, um, a couple, three years ago, I really felt uh, led to dive deep into the Sermon on the Mount during the season of Lent and, and read the Sermon on the Mount through every day, reflectively, quietly, slowly, uh, during those 40 days of the season of Lent, and kind of journal my way through uh, the sermon, not sequentially, I found out. Uh, some of the early journal entries uh, from my Sermon on the Mount journal are from the later verses, and some of the later ones are from the early verses, and so I had to go back through and sort all that out. But uh, just to remind you of where, where we're going, um, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm sharing with you not only w what I have come to understand about the Sermon on the Mount through study and preparation and all those things preachers are supposed to do, uh, but also uh, the, the reflections of that time of journaling my way through the Sermon on the Mount. And, and as I told you last week, when, when I come to the journal part, I'll warn you that this is, <laughs> that this is Gene's journal. Uh, and, and so if, if you want to argue with Gene's journal, you're entirely welcome to do that because uh, it may be just Gene's journal, okay? <laughs> we, ended, we ended last week um, with these words. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything, but is thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. The city built on a hill can't be hid. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it under a bushel basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, and this is what I want to repeat, so hear this as we move into this week's message. In the same way, let your light shine before others 
so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. God's principal plan for the evangelization of the world, for the sharing of the good news, was through the shining lives of his disciples. That, that his disciples would live in such a way in the world that others would be drawn to praise and worship because of what they observed in the lives of the folks that we call the church, of followers of Jesus Christ. That's both really exciting and really encouraging and also kind of discouraging, too. Because sometimes I think we try to make up with our words what we are missing with our lives. We, we try to tell people what we believe and, and what they should believe. And, and it, it, it kind of becomes a do as I say, not as I do. And, and you know, don't look at my life. I'm just human and, and all, but this is what you need to believe. And, and I hear Jesus saying, no, 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 you're, you're, you're not preachers, most of you, thankfully. You're not preachers. You're salt and you're light and, and your lives should be shining in such a way that the folks around you see what you do, whether you ever say anything much or not. The folks around you see what you do and because of what they see in your life, they're drawn to a place of worship and praise. They see your good works and they glorify your Father who is in heaven. Shining lives. That's been the plan all along. That's always been God's primary strategy for reconciling the world to himself. It's always been through his called people. And, and so in the Beatitudes that we read, blessed are the poor, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Jesus is saying it's, it's lives that look like this that then go out into the world and live out of those convictions, live out of that inner sense of peace and hope that draw the world back to the Father. So now we're gonna break a little new ground and we're gonna cover a lot of ground. We're gonna cover pretty much the whole rest of chapter five in this three hour and 21 minute message, like, like my in, inside joke if you weren't here last week. Um, so let's look together at, at these verses from Matthew 5, 17. Don't think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've come not to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until it is accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, and listen to this one, I tell you, unless your righteousness surpass, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Those are really radical words. Nobody's righteousness exceeded that of the scribes and the Pharisees. They, they were members of the most righteousness club. They were the most righteousness people you could find anywhere. Nobody 
was more righteous than the scribes and Pharisees. And, and Jesus says to his disciples, something's gone terribly wrong. Unless your righteousness exceeds their righteousness, you'll never experience or enter the kingdom of heaven. Let me say again that when Jesus talks about the kingdom of heaven in the Sermon on the Mount, he's not talking primarily about where folks go when they die. He's talking primarily about how we experience the life that we've been given here and now. Do we live in this kingdom which has come with the coming of Christ? Do we experience life the way God intended life to be lived? And Jesus says to this crowd, unless you get something that the Pharisees and the scribes have missed, you're never really going to experience the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said, and, and we need to hear it, I don't come to set the law aside. I've come to fulfill the law. I've come to obey the law completely. I, I, I love this quote that popped out of a, an Old Testament theology book by Gerhard von Rod. The purpose of all God's saving work has been the creation of a people wholly capable of obedience. What God's been up to from the very beginning has been the creation of a people who could live a holy life, who could live a righteous life, who could, who could walk in the original intent of the laws of God. The original intent of the laws of God is for abundance, for fullness, for joy, for peace. And all that God has been doing from the very beginning through the law, through the prophets, all that God has been doing from the very beginning has been a work to create for himself a people who were wholly, completely capable of obedience. The word just is problematic. Um, I don't like it when we attach it to other things like the word human. I, I, I don't like it much when we excuse our shortcomings and excuse our failings and excuse even our disobedience by saying, I'm just human. I, I'm, I'm, I'm really only, you know, I can't really because I'm just, you know. And I'm thinking, let's go back to Genesis and let's see what God made and, and let's realize what God makes at the height of, of his creative work. What is God's best work? You are. We are. We are not just human. We are the expression of God's creative energy in his own image. Oh, folks. Your humanity, my humanity, is not an obstacle to your holiness and my holiness. You don't have to become less human to be more holy. You have to become fully human to be holy at all. To, to say that I, I'm only human is, is it would, would be kind of like 
and, and here I'm speaking of things that I know very little about, but which, by the way, we do all the time, don't we? But to say that I'm only human would be a little bit like saying Beethoven's Ninth Symphony is only noise. Now, if there's physics folks in the crowd, you know that, that Beethoven's Ninth Symphony does, in fact, qualify as noise. But, oh my goodness, it is not only noise. You and I are human, but we are not only human. We are not just human. Your humanity and my humanity is not an obstacle to our obedience. What gets in the way of our obedience is our lack of humanity, our failure to be who God created us to be. And Jesus comes along and says, now I'm going to say a lot of things here in a few minutes that are going to be a little confusing to you, but I want you to know before I say any of those things that I have not come to set aside the law. I've come to fulfill it. I've come to obey it perfectly and to enable you as well to live lives of obedience. The law is and has always been an expression of the loving, gracious will of God. Here's something from the journal. I grew up hearing a lot about the difference between law and grace. If you were a Nazarene kid in the 60s, which I was, and if you lived in Southern California, which I did, you heard a lot about grace. I've learned since then that some of my Midwest friends who grew up in the same church at the same time tell me that in their community, in their church, it was all about law. I suppose I've been guilty of thinking about law and grace as opposites, or at least as two stages in kingdom evolution. But that's not what I hear Jesus saying. Listen to him. He seems to be saying, I'm here to do exactly what God was doing when he gave his children the law in the first place. And when he did that, he was doing exactly what he's doing today through my life. Law and grace are not opposites. God did not force the law on Israel. Read Exodus 19, 1 to 9. Let me draw a little parentheses here and just uh, tell you what that is. In, in Exodus 19, 1 to 9, uh, the law has not yet been given, and God and Moses are on the mountain and they're having this conversation, and, and God, and, and this will be the revised Sandor version of this passage, um, God says to Moses, I, I have something for you, but I need to know that the people are on board before I give it to you. So I want you to go back down the mountain, and I want you to ask the people if they're willing to follow me, if they're willing to go all the way with me. And if they are, I have a gift for you. And if they're not, I know other people because it's God, you know, so God knew other people. And, and Moses goes down the mountain and says to the people, if we're, if we're on board with this, if we're ready to follow, if we're ready to be God's people, God has a gift for us. But if we're not, it's okay, he'll give it to somebody else. And the people say, we're on board, let's do this. And Moses goes back up the mountain and God gives Moses what we call the Ten Commandments. 
not as a burden, but as a gift. Well, back to the journal. The law was a gift, a blessing, a call to live life as God always intended it to be lived. The law was an early step in the journey toward wholeness. So here's what worries me about the church. We're not legalists anymore, and that's mostly good. But what we are in danger of becoming is a people who tell people that everything is okay. We're in danger of not only breaking the law as an expression of our freedom, but of raising a generation of people who think the law was for them and grace is for us. We're in danger of, of uh, turning this whole thing on its head and talking so much about the love and grace of God that, that we begin to say to each other and to our next generations, how you live is not really all that important. Just do whatever you want to do. And Jesus said, I haven't come to abolish the law, I've come to fulfill it. From the very beginning, the law was God's gracious gift to us to lead us into abundant life, which we experience, by the way, through obedience. Talk to the youth group about this. They heard about this the other night. There's this thing in Deuteronomy that explains that God only makes laws for one reason, and that is to improve the quality of our lives. And so Jesus doesn't come along to say, you can, you can throw the law out. Jesus comes along to say, I need to help you fulfill the law. I need to get you back into God's plan from the beginning. The teaching of Jesus is completely in harmony with the teaching of the Old Testament, the law and the prophets. But it's in complete disharmony with the interpretation that had come to be prevalent in the time, the interpretation of the scribes and Pharisees. In other words, God got it right, and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law got it all wrong. And that's when Jesus moves into this section of the Sermon on the Mount, where each of the next paragraphs begin, you've heard it said, but I say to you, the tradition has become this. Let me tell you what the original intent was. You've heard it said, don't murder. But I say to you, don't be angry. If you put people down, you're just as guilty. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I say to you, if you look at a woman as an object, you're just as guilty. You've heard it said, make sure divorce follows the law. But I say to you, uh, unless your mate is unfaithful, hang in there. You've heard it said, keep your oaths, but I say to you, just tell the truth. Don't make oaths at all. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, let it go. Don't ever try to get even. You've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for them. What had gone wrong in the legalistic contemporary interpretation of God's perfect law? What, what was it that had gone wrong? Let me suggest a couple, three things. The spirit of the law had been reduced to the letter of the law. 
As, as long as we didn't violate the letter, we were okay. There was no problem. As long as we didn't actually kill somebody, we were in good shape as far as God and the law was concerned. Conformity to the law had been defined purely on the basis of external, observable behavior. There was no longer anything internal about the law of God. It, it had become all about what we do and not about who we are. And the law had come to be interpreted only in terms of what we were not to do. Um, one of the, the I, I think, most prophetic voices of the last century uh, was uh, uh, Charles Schultz. Uh, he he uh, spoke to us weekly through the comic strip Peanuts. There is some profound gospel in Peanuts and some great truth. One of my favorites was, was when Lucy, being Lucy, <clears throat> uh, cornered Snoopy one day and asked Snoopy what he had done to justify his existence. Sounds like a Lucy question to a dog, doesn't it? And Snoopy thought for a minute and said, well, I haven't bitten anybody today. <laughs> and sometimes I think that's what we think the way Christians justify their existence is. As long as we can get through the day without biting anybody, I, I guess we've been Jesus to people. <laughs> Here, here's what Jesus does not say. Jesus does not say that people will glorify our Father in heaven when they see the bad stuff that we're not doing. Do I need to run that by you again? Jesus does not say that people will glorify your Father in heaven when they see the bad stuff you're not doing. Hear Paul's words, for it's by grace that you've been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves, it's God's gift, not by works that anyone should, bo be, should boast. For we are God's handiwork, not just human, not only human. We are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Shining lives. We, we don't witness to the world by just not biting people. I, I have always had a dog. Jenny is the second best dog in the world. Maggie, the golden retriever that we had before Jenny, was first and will always be first. Jenny has big paws to fill. I, I don't have a dog so that when I come home after a week in Lewiston, something won't bite me. I have a dog because when I come home after a week in Lewiston, there is a tail wagging ferociously and a dog jumping up and down because she is so happy I'm home. Now, there's also a wife who is happy. <laughs> but, the, but the dog shows it. <laughs> And it just does my heart so much good 
And the truth is, as you dog folk know, you don't have to have been gone for a week. If you go for 10 or 15 minutes and come home, it's like you've been gone forever, and the dog is just thrilled that you're back. Let your light so shine before men that people will see what you do, and they will glorify your Father. We don't draw people to the church. We don't draw people to Jesus by just not doing bad things. We draw folks into the kingdom. Jesus tells this parable of the Good Samaritan. We know the story. We, we know that the, the, the religious leaders were the first folks that walked by and crossed the road and didn't help, and, and, and that, that the, the fellow that came along that did help was a Samaritan, was a social outcast was a despised minority in the community. What we forget sometimes is, is that the two folk who passed first, the religious leaders who didn't help, were in complete compliance with the law as they understood it. They were doing everything they believed the law commanded them to do when they did nothing. And so we ask not just what went wrong, but, but what are the principles here in these new commands? I think first, the first one is that these are all relational. They all deal with the way we live with others. All, all six or seven of those, you've heard it say, but I say to you, are relational. They deal with the way we live to, with others. Do not murder is not about abstract laws. It's about how we treat the people that we know. I'll say a little more about that in a minute. They all deal with the heart first and then the actions. And they all expose our tendency to reduce the will of God to a level of our own human ability. The scribes and Pharisees had this kind of interpretation down and Jesus said, folks, unless your righteousness surpass theirs, you won't even get into the kingdom. Here's another from the journal. I read today from the New American Standard Bible. Like many Bible versions, the New American Standard inserts headings into the text to identify unifying themes in the coming verses. I mostly find these annoying because they're not originally in the Bible. But this morning, all of the you have heard it said, but I say to you passages are grouped together under the heading personal relationships. I think that we typically think of this section as a list of no-nos that Jesus makes much harder to avoid than the old law did. But grouped together under this heading really makes it all about what the law has always been about, the way we live together in holy, healthy community. It's not enough to resist the temptation to kill each other. It's about valuing people enough that we don't even call them names. It's not enough to avoid sex with somebody's spouse. It's about not ever seeing anyone as an object of our own selfish desire. It's not enough to tell the truth most of the time. It's about living a life of simple, consistent integrity, about saying what we mean and meaning what we say in a way that assures the folks with whom we interact on a daily basis. It's not about getting even. It's not about building walls of self-defense between us and them. It's about loving everyone the way God 
our Father does. Turns out the editors of the New American Standard Bible got it right. These things are all about personal, healthy, holy relationships. So let's take a little closer look at, at what this righteous life that Jesus is calling his disciples to actually looks like. Let's focus for a few minutes not on the you have heard it said side of that equation, but on the but I say to you side of that equation. What does a righteous life look like? What does a holy life look like? You remember that last week we defined righteous with that Jewish word shalom, which really means things put right. My relationship with God put right. Your relationship with one another put right. Our relationship together put right. Our relationship to the world in which we live put right. So what's Jesus saying when he says, but I say to you? First, it looks like a life of growing connectedness to people. It looks like a life that finds value in others and that does not need to put other people down in order to feel better about the self. Let's talk about, you've heard it said, thou shalt not kill, but I say to you, about what's going on there. None of the Ten Commandments has been more politicized than that commandment. We all, we all want to use, in one way or another, we've all been tempted or tried to use that commandment as a way of supporting our particular position on this issue or that issue. Whether the issue has been the military or capital punishment or uh, abortion or whatever the issue has been, we've all wanted to grab a hold of that commandment and say, look, this is what this says. And we've all kind of missed the point. Because what Jesus does with this commandment is say, you've heard it said, you shall not commit murder. But I say to you that if you are angry with a brother or a sister, you'll be liable for judgment. And if you insult a brother or a sister, you will be liable to the council. And if you say you fool, you will be liable to hellfire. So when you're offering your gift at the altar, if you remember that you have a brother or a sister uh, that has something against you, leave your gift at the altar and go take care of that relationship. You see, what's going on when God says to Israel, don't kill each other, God is saying to Israel, figure out another way to live together without just beating each other over the head. It's not about how we theoretically view our relationship to people we don't know. This commandment is about the way we treat the people around us the people we know. And, and, and murder, he says, is the extreme. But a lot of stuff happens before we get to murder, <laughs> doesn't it? <laughs> like insult, like name-calling, like shunning. A life that is a righteous life looks like a life of growing connectedness with people in which we figure out how to love one another and to live productively with one another. 
the next one. It looks like a life unafraid of fidelity. This is Jesus' comment about the law on divorce, which had become a matter of convenience, even within the religious tradition at the time. And, and he focuses on this issue of adultery, which is, is what you know it is. And, and he said, the law says don't do that, but, but what I'm saying to you is, what you're doing with your body is a reflection of what you've already done in your mind. The tradition said don't commit adultery. Jesus said the same evil that leads a man or woman to break those significant promises or to cause another to do the same also expresses itself in an attitude of the heart which sees another as a means to meet my own selfish need. The law says don't do this. Jesus says, yeah, but if you, you know, Come on, folks. Our actions come out of our heart. It looks like a commitment to permanence in marriage, which is not a result of a lack of stress or difficulty, but grows out of a commitment to the most important promise we've made. It, it looks like a life of simple honesty. The... the the law had become about um, swearing on something, the Bible, the family, your mother's grave, whatever. When, when, I, when our kids were small and our son was in the Boy Scouts or the Cub Scouts, he, he, he learned, we learned that, if, you, that if, if somebody didn't believe what you were telling them, you would say three fingers, and three fingers was the sign that it was absolutely true. You, 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 couldn't, you couldn't lie on three fingers. At least that's what their parents thought at the time. What Jesus is saying is, it's not about having to tell somebody, no, this time it's really true. This time I'm really telling you the truth. This time I won't deceive you. It's, it's about living a life of simple integrity a life that says what it believes and believes what it says, a life that builds confidence in those around us. This is a really important contemporary issue, isn't it? We're, we're in a time, just in these days, immediately around us, we're in a time when nobody believes anything anymore. We doubt everything we hear, and probably for good reason, but... But Jesus is calling his people to lie, to live lives of, of simple, plain, old, garden variety, truth-telling. So that the people around us know that when we say it's so, it's really so. And we say we will, we really will. And when we say we won't, we really, really won't. Jesus said once to his disciples, I'm the truth and you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. And that has really significant theological meaning about the nature of Christ as God's truth. But let me share something with you. It's also just generally true about life. The truth, folks, will set us free. Deceit will always land us in some kind of prison. Jesus said, you, you've heard it said, don't, don't lie when you 
swear an oath. But I'm saying to you, just tell the truth. It looks like freedom from the need to win. There are no chains stronger than the need to be right or to be first or to get even. The world, it turns out, is not divided into people who have been hurt and people who have hurt. We've all both been, we've all been on both sides of that equation. The righteous life to which Christ, in which Christ lived and to which Christ calls is a life free from the need to get even. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I, I tell you, if somebody smacks you on the right cheek, turn the left. I hate that. <laughs> but there it is. Deal with it. If somebody asks for your coat, don't hold back. Go ahead and give them your shirt, too. You see, the righteous life, the life where everything is right, it is, is a life that views service as an opportunity, not as an obligation. And that recognizes in the need of another person the opportunity to give and to provide grace. I, I, I love the picture of the last illustration that Jesus gives. He says, if somebody asks you to go with them one mile, to carry a burden one mile, go two. You know the story behind that? It, the Roman law was that a Roman soldier, a Roman citizen, could stop you on the road if you were a non-citizen. The Roman soldier could stop you on the road and, and say, I need, I need that carried for me for a mile. And you had to do it. And, and, and so you were going that way, and he's going this way, and he said, hey, you, I need you to pick that up and go with me for a mile. And you say, okay. And so you put the load on your back, and you walk a mile. But can you imagine, can, can you imagine as, as the mile post comes into view and the soldier begins to look around for the next non-citizen sucker, you know, <laughs> that he's going to grab a hold of and say, now I need you to carry that for a mile. Can you imagine what would happen if, if the fellow under the load just kept walking and, and, looked, and looked back at the soldier on his horse and said, what's up? Let's go. Well, you don't, but, no, nah, come on, let's go. Let's do another mile. Do you, do you see how that relationship suddenly changes? How, how the first mile, you've done nothing but what you had to do. And so the soldier is in charge, Right? Do you see what happens during the second mile? That relationship is flipped on its head. For the first several hundred yards, the soldier doesn't know what to do with you. And for the next couple of hundred yards, the soldier is asking you, what's this? And for the last half mile, you get to tell them why you're happy to be there and why you're happy to serve. For the last half mile, the guy on the ground carrying the load is in charge. <laughs> oh, Jesus calls us to turn the other cheek and walk the extra mile 
not because he wants to see us worn out and beat up, but because he wants to see us walk into a place where the world has to listen. From the journal, we've all heard the saying, the best defense is a good offense. What I think I hear Jesus saying is defense is a bad idea in the first place. Unless you're Iowa State, by the way. Uh, <laughs> some of you watched that game. Uh, most of the Christian voices I hear, at least the loud ones, are calling for one form of defense or another. We want somebody to tell us they're going to make us safe. They're going to give us power. What I hear Jesus telling his disciples is not to play defense at all. If they punch you, let them do it again. If they want your coat, give them your shirt. And then Jesus practiced what he preached. And it took him to the cross. And then, oh yeah, he won. This whole thing about turn the other cheek, walk the other mile, coat, cloak, this whole thing is about turning the social relationship on its head and putting the disciple of Jesus Christ in the position to speak love and reconciliation and truth and harmony. The next one. The righteous life is a life that embraces people as they are, where they are, asking nothing in return, not even the promise that they won't hurt us. Tradition says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Jesus said, love your enemy. Um, you've heard, I've heard, you've said, I've said, I know some non-Christian people who seem more loving than some Christian people I know. Can we admit that? You may even think of somebody who doesn't claim to be Christian, but they are loving and giving and outgoing. Sadly, we probably all know people who claim to be Christian who aren't very loving. But when I hear that, I think of Jesus saying this, and I think that Jesus calls his children to a place you can't get to without the presence of his Holy Spirit. I don't know any non-disciples who are committed to loving their enemy. Maybe you do. From the journal, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. I was talking to a student earlier today about the psalmist very, about the psalmist very unchristlike words in Psalm 139. Listen to the psalmist. Oh, that you would kill the wicked, O God, and that the bloodthirsty would depart from me, those who speak of you maliciously and lift themselves up against you for evil. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with a perfect hatred. I count them as my enemies. <laughs> uh, let me insert, and this is in the journal, I firmly believe that the worst kind of bigot is the religious bigot. As soon as I believe that my enemies are God's enemies, 
As soon as I can convince myself that hating those who hate my version of God is service to God, I am free to say or do or feel any hateful thing I choose while maintaining, even bolstering, my sense of self-righteousness. But thankfully, these aren't the last words of the song. Listen to the prayer that follows those vindictive words. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my thoughts. See if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. A couple of thoughts, still reading from the journal. God has no enemies. And the call of God to my heart is to love those who see themselves as my enemies. As long as I keep praying, search me, O God, know me, lead me. I'll keep moving in the direction of a life that reflects the love of my Father for all his children. A, a right life, a righteous life, a holy life is, is a life that loves what God loves. A life that loves who God loves. And so the disciple of Jesus, oh, I know, he, he knew we would have folks who we considered enemies. <laughs> and so he said, you've heard it said, love the folks like you and hate the others. But he said, listen, what I want to tell you is that there is a call as a follower of Jesus to love them all and pray for them. Wish we could talk about that. That's as opposed to praying at them or about them. Pray for them. Finally, it's a life that looks like the Father. Love your enemies in order that you may show yourselves to be sons of your heavenly Father. Remember that is a reflection of what we read when, in the blessed are the peacemakers. For they look like their heavenly Father. Again from the journal. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? Everything in the sermon, this is the journal, everything in the Sermon on the Mount is crazy. Capital letters, it's all capital letters. Did I sound like they were capital letters? Everything in the Sermon on the Mount is crazy. Everyone knows that none of this works in the real world. Me first is the way to get by and maybe even the way to get ahead. And I'm hearing Jesus tell me through these words that the way I interact with the other is central to my understanding of how I live in the kingdom of God. Gentiles, by which Jesus meant people who don't follow the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, are recognizable by the way they greet one another and no one else. Disciples see everyone and don't reserve their affectionate greeting for the in crowd. Lord, help me open my eyes to the people who aren't like me at all and see how much like me they really are. Help me stop worrying about who I can trust and start looking for chances to just love people and trust you. I want to 
stop there for just a second. This idea of love and trust. Sometimes I think we, we get into this mindset where we are so distrustful of the people around us that we withhold genuine affection. We withhold genuine acceptance. And, and you remember, we talked a few weeks ago about the difference between acceptance and tolerance. I am not talking about tolerance. I'm talking about genuine acceptance. And we, we've come to believe that, that we have to be careful about, that, that, that as Christians, we, 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 we should love God and be careful about trusting people. And I think what I hear Jesus calling us to in the Sermon on the Mount is, is a life that gets that the other way around, a life that loves people and trusts God. What if, what if they use me? What if they hurt me? What if this doesn't turn out to be helpful? My, my wife uh, runs a... a compassionate ministry that gives bicycles away to, to mostly um, homeless men who have no way to get to work. Um, they've given like 180 bicycles away in the last year and a half or so. And somebody asked her once, don't you ever worry about getting taken? Don't you ever worry about somebody coming in and, and getting a bike and then just going and selling it? And she said, you mean like last week? <laughs> no, we don't worry about that. Because it's not about trusting people, it's about trusting God and loving people. And so this righteous life is a life that has learned how to trust God. And in trusting God, we can just let go and love people. Well, if you haven't been challenged enough by anything else in this message or in these passages, let me mess your life up a little bit. Because here's where it ends. After Jesus calls us to love our enemies, he closes that paragraph with these words. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Oops. <laughs> I was feeling like I was about 76% of the way to what you've been talking about. A little way to go but past halfway, doing pretty good, and then you come to the end of this thing and you say, oh, by the way, here's the call. The call is to be perfect, like God is perfect. And I'm betting you think your percentage dropped all the way down to about 73, <laughs> or zero. We had the real privilege, real joy of living for 10 years in, in the middle of the redwoods, the redwood forests in Northern California. Um, sometimes, depending on where I am in the country, I get the feeling that God used some sections of the world to practice for others. You know, because there's like Eastern Oregon and then there's the Tetons, you know, and, and it, it never mind. Um, but, but some of God's best work is in the redwoods. Oh, man, I love it. We had a, a missionary visit us in our church, a, a, a gentleman by the name of Jaap Connes. He's a missionary from the Netherlands where trees don't get big. And he had heard about the redwoods 
all of his life, and he was so excited, and he, we, he, he preached on Sunday, and he was with us for another couple of days, and he said, could you take me to see the big redwoods? Oh, yeah, we'd love to do that. He said, he said because, because I, I want to go to one of those trees, and I want to reach my arm all the way around it and touch it in the back like this. I said, yeah, we'll, we, we'll do that for you. <laughs> And so we took him up to kind of a little-known redwood grove that the natives know about, and we don't tell the tourists about because, you know, now that is. And, and th this isn't the tree, but, it, but it's like that. And, 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 and Yop got out of the car, and, 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 and so the four of us stood next to the tree, joining arms, and we could still all four see each other because <laughs> it was so big. He was so impressed. Later, we got talking about this passage of Scripture. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And, and right around the corner from our home, there was a, a, a daffodil farm, commercial daffodil farm. Yop loved it. It was more like his hometown. And as we talked about this passage of Scripture, Yop made this amazing insightful comparison he said you know sometimes when we think that we need to be perfect like god is perfect it's like a daffodil thinking it needs to become a redwood tree but he said gene there there's nothing more perfect than a daffodil as long as it's willing to just be a daffodil and, and he brought me back to this passage of scripture and he said, you know, Gene, what this means? It means simply, you be perfectly you, just as God is perfectly God. It, it, it's not about the daffodil going through life ashamed of not being a redwood tree. It's not like you and me going through life stumbling over our failure and our miserable attempts to be God, which we're not, but about recognizing that the way you bring glory to God is by being exactly who you are. Not the person down the pew from you, not the person you think is a better Christian than you are, the way you and I bring glory to God is that we allow the Holy Spirit to form within us the life that is Gene or Bill or whoever else. Be perfect. Be who God made you to be. Tell the truth. Love others. Live simply. Embrace your enemies if they're willing, <laughs> but be careful. <laughs> and the people around you will see your shining life and be drawn into a life of worship and praise. Let's pray. Loving God, I, I think the first time I read Be Perfect as You Are Perfect, it scared me half to death. Because I'm not you and I can't be you. I, I thank you for my brother Yop who told me all I have to do is be a daffodil, not a redwood tree. I just have to be who you created me to be. I have to embrace 
and be grateful for my own humanity that is a reflection of your beautiful image. And I have to learn to walk in love for others and trusting you. And I pray, Father, that as we go from this place this morning, we'll reflect and rest in your call to be perfectly who we are, to walk in the light of your love and your forgiveness and your grace and to share that with others as our light shines. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Have a, have a great week. Go shine someplace, okay?